Columbia Technology Ventures presents Venture Capital Perspective with Carlo Rizzuto, Operating Principal at Versant Ventures, recorded at Columbia University. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. So, um... Thanks to everyone for joining us today. Uh, my name is Oren Herskowitz. I run the Tech Transfer Office for Columbia, it's Columbia Technology Ventures. Um, for those of you who don't know what that means, just to, for context, what that means is when the faculty and student researchers around the university come up with scientific inventions, our role is to um, receive those inventions, about 400 or so a year come into our office. We then, with the help of our graduate student fellows, analyze those inventions for patentability and commercial potential, and file patents on those that sort of meet the threshold. It's about 270 some odd a year of new patents. And then we try to license those to industry, um, either directly to industry, which we do about 80 some odd times a year, or via startup companies, which roughly 20 or so a year. And then all the money that comes from that flows back to the university to pay for further research and uh, things along those lines. So that's us. Um, I'm very pleased to have uh, Carlo here with us today um, for a variety of reasons. First, it's always great when, um, when the world's renowned venture firms stop at Columbia on their way through New York. It's even more exciting when they are moving to New York to stay. And so uh, Carlo and I were just discussing before the challenges of finding, um, now, now even they, like us, still have to find places to live <laughs> and a place to put the office. Um, so no one's immune from the challenges of the New York real estate market. Um, but I'm going to let Carlo introduce himself and, and the fund, uh, both the new fund they raised and why they're thinking about New York City. Um, and then once you're done with your slides, we'll, we can come back up and have a little conversation. Sounds good. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Um, as Oren said, I'm Carlo Rizzuto. I'm a principal with Versant Ventures, which I'll tell you a bit about. Uh, my background, just so you know where I'm coming from, is I, I was a PhD uh, student, like many of you guys, I assume. I studied virology at Harvard. Um, I've done a biotech startup, so I worked with Flagship Ventures, which is one of the big Boston-based firms, and did a startup pretty much right out of grad school, and had a mixed experience, I would say. Uh, so I know some of the things that can go wrong with a, with a startup, especially a venture-backed startup. After that uh, startup time, I went to McKinsey. I spent about six years there doing management consulting. I moved to Europe, and I've lived in Europe for about 11 years now. From McKinsey, I went to Novartis, and I was the chief of staff for Joe Jimenez, who's the CEO. And so I got to see a pharma company from that kind of very high-level perspective. And then rather than go run a sales force in South Korea, I actually wanted to go and get back closer to science. And so I went into drug development at Novartis. And I, I spent about three years doing that before the bureaucracy started to drive me crazy. And I wanted to get back to more entrepreneurial, science-driven work. And so when Versant uh, contacted me and told me that they were expanding their European office, I, I jumped at that because their office is actually based in Basel, Switzerland, which is where Novartis and I were uh, located at the time. So I've been with Versant for about two and a half years now. So I think I have probably some things in common with, with many of you in, in terms of where I come from uh, and some of the experiences that, that I've had. I want to tell you a little bit about Versant and our kind of twist on, on venture capital. I'm going to assume as I go through this that most people don't have a whole lot of familiarity with what we do, um, but you've probably, you probably have some images like this in your mind which is uh, a, a screen grab from The Social Network, uh, where uh, I guess it's uh, Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake, basically steals the company out from under a couple of the founders. Uh, and certainly, I know that this was one of the things that I was worried about when I was, help, was trying to start a company uh, with a venture capital firm. And I can tell you that you know, we're nothing like that. Very easy for me to say, but it's objective because I'm not nearly as cool as Justin Timberlake. So. I don't think I could steal a company out from under an entrepreneur. You know, what is Versant? Versant is one of the few uh, healthcare-focused uh, venture capital firms in the world. We only do healthcare. That means therapeutics and medical devices. We 
do pretty much only that. Uh, we used to be much more diversified in that we did diagnostics, we did healthcare services, healthcare IT. Um, but really, we've narrowed the focus of the firm down to those two areas. And I'd say we're about two-thirds therapeutics and one-third medical devices. We have about $2 billion under management, uh, and that's raised across a number of funds. Our latest fund is $305 million, and we just raised that at the end of last year. So it's, a, it's a, something that we're actively investing right now. We do primarily early stage investing. So what that means is uh, typically academic spin-outs, but we can go across the whole spectrum out to companies that are fully formed with management teams and, um, and clinical stage programs. But our, what we love to do more than anything is create new companies out of, out of academia. That's our, our sweet spot. Early stage investing is a very challenging thing to do, and I'll get into some of the reasons why. Um, but one thing that we've done to try and uh, mitigate that challenge is we've created what we call a, a build-to-buy business model. Uh, and this is a way to, to de-risk early stage company creation, and I'll talk a bit about that. We also try to work in innovative ways in terms of how we organize ourselves and how we, we uh, leverage our venture capital funds, and we create what we call engines for starting companies, and I'll, I'll show you some of those. And the last thing to say about Versin is we're a little bit unusual as well in that we're very much a global firm. So we were founded in San Francisco in 1999, and we've expanded from there to, um, to Basel, Switzerland, which is our European office. We're up in Canada, uh, and now we've been looking at the East Coast for some time and decided to come to New York. And so that's the reason I'm here, and I'm very grateful that Oren and the team invited me to, to speak with you. The, um, the thing that links all of that is, um, is this team. Um, this is the entire uh, biotech team at Versant, so you can see that we're not a huge group. Um, and the only thing I'll say here is that um, we have a real mix of very senior, experienced guys like Brad, uh, Guido, Johnny here, who have spent many, many years working in pharma and have seen many drugs advance and fail and some succeed. They've done many deals, so they've seen this again and again and again. And those guys, those very senior guys, are comp complimented folks like myself, uh, Stefan, Claire, Gerald, Alicia over here. We're, um, I guess you could call us the all-rounders. So we're typically PhDs. We've typically done management consulting. We've been involved in pharma or biotech in one way. But we've kind of moved around and done a lot of different things in our careers. And so we're the guys who are sort of more operational, day-to-day, -day, make stuff happen, and then leverage the, the more senior guys. This is um, a way to describe our investment strategy in terms of what kinds of deals appeal to us. And I realize if you're not too familiar with, with venture capital, uh, this might be a little bit confusing, but let me try and explain. So. Um, all the deals that we do can fall roughly into one of these three categories. The first is really about a, an investment model. So it cuts across like therapy areas and it cuts across early and, and late stage, but it's a way, and I'll, and I'll talk more about it, it's a way to invest in collaboration with a venture capital firm and a pharma partner very early in the company's life. And I'll come back to that. I think the easier to, to grasp ones for now are the kinds of things that we get excited about are first-in-class assets. So when we think about investing in a company, we're less excited about um, a new indication for an old drug or reformulating a drug. Um, what we really get excited about is first-in-class opportunities to go after novel targets for big unmet needs. And that's really because ultimately our goal is to either take a company public or to sell it to a pharmaceutical company. And in either of those scenarios, what really appeals to the, the end customer, if you will, is that novelty, that really high quality science that's addressing a big, big unmet medical need. And so that's why we focus on first-in-class discovery. We also do um, clinical stage investing. So that's probably a third of what we do, the other two-thirds being early, meaning preclinical. Um, and so we, we do an increasing amount of this. It's a very different type of investing where you already have a fully formed company, where you have assets that are mature that you can look at lots of data and clinical data. Um, but that's part of what we do. Now, coming to why, why is early-stage in investing difficult? Um, this is the traditional way of doing it. 
you have, um, you, you basically create a company around some technology. You, you build up labs, you hire a team, you do lots of research. Um, eventually you get into the clinic, you run a clinical trial. And that process takes like five to 10 years to get to the point where someone might be interested in what you're doing. It's very, very risky, it's very expensive, it takes a huge amount of time. Now, that's not a good investment thesis. And fundamentally, as a venture capital firm, we're investors, right? We, we're, we roll up our sleeves, we work with the teams, but at the end of the day, what we need to do is we need to return the funds that we raise to our investors and return that with a significant profit. So this is why there aren't many firms that do early stage venture capital anymore, is it's really hard to make money doing this. So it's not impossible. And we do some of that, and I'll, I'll tell you about some companies that we've done like that. But this model, this build-to-buy business model, is a solution to, to some of the challenges that you have with early-stage investing. And so what is it? It's, it's, a, it's a way to finance a company very early in its life, meaning two or three years from the time that it reaches clinical trials. So typically that means the day it spins out of, a, of an academic institute. And um, what we do is we partner these companies with a pharma very early on, and they're in, they enter into an option-based agreement. And that option-based agreement has two main parts. Part number one is the pharma partner provides uh, a very large amount of non-dilutive capital, so 20 to $40 million. Non-dilutive means they don't, get, they don't get any equity for it. So when you're a founder of a company, the currency that you, you sort of live and die by is equity how much of the company you own, because you won't be able to put more money into the company yourself. So ultimately, you start with a piece of equity, and that equity gets diluted as you raise more and more money. Right? So a founder of a company usually ends up with something like 1% to 2% of a company by the time it's raised all the money it's going to raise and has reached a, an exit. This model solves some of that problem, that, that need to raise lots and lots of equity capital because you get non-dilutive capital from a pharma partner. So that's good because what it means is you have less dilution. So as a founder, you own a lot more of the company than you would otherwise. It's also good from our point of view because being investors, we don't like dilution either. So the less equity capital we have to raise, the better. The other benefit is that because a pharma partner is coming in and saying, we like this program, we're gonna put, we're gonna basically gonna grant you 20 or $40 million they have to have done a lot of diligence. They have to believe in the program. And so it validates the concept rather than coming over here five to 10 years later and saying, oh, does anybody care about what we've done? We actually find out if they care right at the start. Okay. And then finally, from the farmer's point of view, why in the world would they do this? They do this because they're trying to basically shrink their R&D organization and use the external world to do early stage discovery for them. And so this very much fits with where they're going strategically. And for them to put 20 to $40 million in is not a big deal, uh, particularly when what they get in exchange for that is a right to buy the company uh, at a preset price, at a, at a milestone that we agree on, which is typically at IND, so that's when a, a drug goes from the preclinical stage into the clinic, or it could be at phase one, um, which is when you test for safety of, of a drug. So what you're doing is you're, you're, you're collapsing the time it takes to get from the start of a company's life to where you get a big value inflection point by, by entering into a, a partnership like this. Now, sort of business models aside, there are you know, areas that we're excited about and areas that we're less excited about. And some of the ones that we're excited about are here. I don't think there's anything that's hugely novel here in terms of not gonna blow anybody away. Um, Suffice it to say that oncology and immuno-oncology are extremely interesting. Um, but some of the things that are maybe a little bit different about Versant is that we really like ophthalmology. We have deep, deep expertise in, in the ophthalmic field. Um, we think regenerative medicine is really the place to be for the future and thinking about um, basically repairing the damage that has been done by diseases. Um, gene therapy is something that we've bet very, very heavily on. So we have four companies in the gene therapy space. We think that now, after 20 years, it's finally the time for gene therapy. And then, you know, something that we haven't invested in yet, but what we'd love to, is, is the microbiome space. We think that the biology here is still very, very early. Um, 
We don't understand how the microbiome is influencing a lot of diseases, but it seems to be influencing a lot of diseases. So it's an area that we'd love to find an opportunity to invest. Um, as I mentioned, we do a huge amount of work with academic institutions uh, to create companies that, that are, that are spin-outs. These are some of them listed here. Um, you know, we've done a company with Harvard called Amira. This one actually has already been sold um, to BMS. We sold it for about $450 million for a phase one uh, asset. Um, we've worked throughout Europe um, with the IRBM and with, uh, this is actually from Cornell, but also from Inserm, which is like the French NIH. We have a company in Spain that came out of the Val de Bron, which is the, the major oncology hospital in Spain and actually where Jose Baselga came. He's the physician in chief at Sloan Kettering. And then we've done a lot um, in the US, obviously. So Stanford, we created a company called Quantacell, another Stanford company, uh, Inception 3, uh, works, which works in hearing loss, UCSF, um, which, is a, which is an MS company. Uh, we spun out of UCSF, and many, many, many others. Uh, we haven't done any in New York yet, but hopefully that's going to change soon. Um, I want to talk a little bit about our engines. Engines are ways that we um, use our fund strategically to basically magnitude, uh, increase the magnitude of the amount we can invest. So uh, Inception Sciences, which I'll talk more about on the next slide, is a medicinal chemistry incubator. Um, it's run by very, very experienced medicinal chemists that came out of pharma and have made many, many drugs. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Blue Line is a, is a geographic incubator in Toronto, and it's in partnership with Celgene. And the way this works is that Versant and Celgene co-fund uh, Blue Line, and we can use those combined funds to create spin-out companies from Toronto institutions. High Line is uh, one that we're actually going to set up here in New York. So in addition to having a Versant office, we're going to create an incubator called High Line, and it will be really focused on creating spin-outs from New York academic institutions, and it will be partnered with a pharma company, much like Blue Line, so that we don't have just Versant's money to spend, we can also spend the pharma partner's money. And so the combined uh, total there uh, will be more than we could have from Versant alone. I want to say a couple words about Inception because it's very relevant often when we, when we think about academic programs, especially small molecule programs. So Inception really is a bridge, if you will, between an academic program, a small molecule program, and, and pharma. And the reason, what, what makes Inception work so well is it is run by uh, a very experienced medicinal chemist from Merck named Pepe Prasset. He has a team of about 75 people. And they are, some, we think, some of the best medicinal chemists in the world. So they've put three drugs on the market, probably 20 drugs into the clinic, and they've worked on many, many different target classes. And often what we see as a, as a venture fund is when we go around academia and we look at programs, we see really interesting targets. Sometimes we see hits from high throughput screens or medium throughput screens, what have you. Um, but oftentimes, or usually, those hits are not drugs, meaning that they have liabilities that will prevent them from ever going anywhere in the clinic. And what you need is you need a medicinal chemist to work on those molecules and get them ready for clinical studies. So that's kind of where we, we often see acad academia get stuck, is that really interesting biology, um, a molecule from, from a screen that has some interesting properties, but it's not a drug. So what, how do we take that forward? Inception is designed to take that forward. And so what we do with Inception is we, we have a mothership that kind of sits up here that employs these 75 people I mentioned. And then we create Inception companies underneath that. And we now have six or seven of those. And the, the founders of these companies are uh, Versant, Inception, the Academic Institute, where the technology came from, and the individuals, from the, so the scientific founders. Right? And they are all co-founders of, of these companies. So this hearing company here was co-founded with Stanford. Um, the MS company here was co-founded with UCSF, and as well as the academic individuals. So like Jonah Chan and Ari Green from MS or from, from UCSF are co-founders there. And so it's like creating a company, except you're creating a company in the context of a group of people who already know how to do all this stuff. So it makes it much, much easier 
to get a company off the ground and to feel confident that your compound is going to advance quickly. The other thing that we do with Inception is we can do these build to buy deals, which is why you see all these logos down here. So each of these companies is partnered with a, with a pharma in a, in a build to buy transaction, so an option based deal um, for the company. Some of them are not. And so we can work in any way that we like with Inception. We can create companies that get venture financed. We can create companies that are um, in these build-to-buy partnerships. Um, and so it's, it's very flexible. But we do like this model. Um, we like using this build-to-buy model in combination with Inception, but it's not a requirement. So let me come to New York. Um, Highline Therapeutics is this incubator that we plan to set up here. Um, it's going to be based right here in Manhattan, uh, probably in Chelsea if the lease comes through. Um, we will, as with Blue Line, fund this in part with a, with a pharma collaboration. And basically what the pharma will have is a right to negotiate a partnership with a co any companies that come out. That will be the only right. So basically it's, it's, it's a discussion as to whether they want to get involved. Um, the real goal here is to leverage all of the academic science that's happening in New York and the quality is, is phenomenal and we're very excited about the opportunities that we see here. And we can leverage that science for inception or we can build standalone companies. We're agnostic, it doesn't really matter you know, to me whether something fits into inception or fits into a standalone company, we're just we're looking for great projects. Um, it will be very similar to Blue Line, as I described, and we're already at the point where I think we're going to launch our first company this quarter. So by the end of June, we think we'll have our first company off the ground here in New York, which will be great. Um, this just speaks to why did we pick New York? Um, the obvious place to go on the East Coast is clearly Boston. So why would we come to New York? And this, this, this is the reason. Um, when we look at the amount of research funding coming into these major cities, you can see that Boston and San Francisco are, are, are quite comparable. Or sorry, New York and San Francisco are quite comparable. But when you look at biotech VC, so not all VC, just biotech VC, New York is really almost nowhere um, to be found on that. And so this difference, this ninefold difference between NIH funding and biotech venture funding is the reason that we think there's so much opportunity to, to come to New York. We also love the fact that we can basically just walk around <laughs> and find stuff. And as somebody who's done way too much traveling in my career, I really like that. Um, there are clearly a number of challenges, and maybe this is something we should talk about in our sit-down org, with trying to do early stage VC in New York. And I've listed the ones that I think are most important here. So the first is infrastructure. You gotta have a place to put companies. Companies need wet labs. Companies need access to animal facilities, especially if you're doing therapeutics. So this is a, a critical piece. I know that there's a lot of activity and a lot of thinking about how to solve this problem, but it's a real problem. Talent is, is also a significant issue. And this is talent in terms of professional management that can come in and run these companies that have done this many times before. You have a huge stable of these people in Boston and San Francisco and somewhat in San Diego, um, but you have pharma people in New York, but not so much biotech people. And so squaring that circle is important. And then finally, culture. Culture, again, is a vital component, and it's a little bit different from talent. Culture is about, um, understanding what it takes to build a successful biotech company, about what is going to appeal to a venture group or to a pharma company, about what a good deal looks like, what are reasonable terms, all these sorts of things. You know, what are all the different service providers that have to come together to make a biotech work? You know, when you think about legal and IP and accounting, um, HR, all these sorts of things that have their own unique twist in the biotech world, all that needs to come together. So that's what I mean when I say culture. But you know, I would say you know, while there are many challenges, we've decided to come here. We're incredibly excited about what we see. Um, I'm personally very excited. I'm from Long Island. I probably didn't mention that. So this is an 11-year homecoming for me after 11 years in Europe. And um, we're going to be starting this summer. So, really looking forward to it. I, that was it. Why did Versant decide to make this jump now? Yeah. 
um, you know, what, what seemed in your mind to have changed about New York? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a fair question. There's a simple answer, which is I joined Versant. Thank <laughs> you. I sort of had a vested interest, if you will, in, in trying to, to make New York happen. And, so I, and I think in the reality of life is that you need people with vested interests to make things happen. So that's a part of it. But you know, I think the, the reason why I was able to convince my partners is that you know, we've seen a real change happening in the city over the last several years. So I think it you know, it's hard to say when it started, but you know, Craig Thompson and Mark Tessier-Levine and Laurie Glimpshire coming in was certainly a part of that. For context, those are the deans of some of our uh, sister institutions from the east side, yeah. um, many of whom came from industry. Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. So they've all done startups and um, worked in industry before. Um, so that was, that was a part. Then we saw things like the Alexandria Center, and the interest that some of the pharmas were showing in New York City. Um, so, you know, Roche, Lilly, uh, Pfizer are all there. Um, and, you know, basically making a real commitment to being in New York. So that was, that was another piece. And then finally, you know, as we've seen pharma getting more and more interested in cutting edge, early stage science, because of the fact that they're shrinking their R&D organizations, we need more substrate to start companies around. And when you're looking for substrate, what you're looking for are world-class academic medical institutions. And New York has more of those than any other place that I'm aware of. So those are really the, the factors that we considered. And when you think about um, the road ahead for New York then, are there, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people starting to row in the same direction. So you've got yeah. uh, things like Harlem Biospace, which is the Columbia-affiliated um, incubator started by Sam Sia, a faculty member in biomedical engineering, just right down the hill. But you're yep. seeing uh, efforts spring up all over the city. Yep. Um, you're starting to see some networking events in bio. You're seeing more of the bio invest uh, investors coming. Um, if you could offer some advice to the mayor about um, uh, things that you'd still love to see New York do to try and rival um, you know, Cambridge or San Francisco yep. or San Diego or other clusters. Are there things that, that sort of come to mind to, to address some of those challenges? Well, definitely. Um, you know, I, I think the need for low cost or medium cost lab space that has easy access to an animal facility is fundamentally important, right? Without that, it's very difficult to keep companies here because it's much easier to just relocate them to Boston, put them in San Francisco, it doesn't really matter. Um, because that, that's just essential to, to the function of an early stage biotech. So I think that's, that's one thing that the city can definitely do. The second thing is somehow, you know, what makes Boston and San Francisco work is that people need to take risk, right? And risk means you're gonna commit part of your career to this company which could easily fail. And the reason that people get comfortable taking that risk is they know if their company fails, they can jump to the next one. Right, so you need this sort of critical mass for people to feel comfortable taking risk and putting their families and their livelihood at risk, um, given that these are, you know, these are not guaranteed things. So finding some way to, you know, jumpstart the, the talent base, um, and I don't have the, I don't know what the solution is, whether it's some tax kind of incentives or something like that, but something that makes it easier for people to take those risks uh, would, would be another piece. Yeah, and it seems like we have such a huge wealth of, of academic talent. And that means not only, of course, the faculty researchers, but their postdocs and their graduate students who are potentially the talent pool that uh, are, are often the ones who really go, you know, get the company off the ground. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, so you've done a lot of work with academic institutions over the years. Um, and I imagine that you've seen some sort of common threads of uh, benefits of working with academic institutions. Um, are there challenges that you find? And we have thick skins here, so feel free to be blunt, especially we've never done a deal with them, so anything negative he says <laughs> is not about us. I just want to make that clear. Right. Um, the, are there common challenges you find often working with academic institutions, either on the licensing side yeah. or with the academic talent that comes and joins the company once it's up and running? Yeah. There are certainly some common themes, I think, to the, to the challenges. And you know, we're all, 
we all have to work through it together because every time, you know, we, we, we create a lot of companies, but it's often the case that our partner on the other side of the table, this might be their first company or, you know, or there aren't a huge number of companies that they've done in the past. So to some extent, it's a little bit of an unfair discussion in that sense, given that we have so much experience uh, and our counterparty may not. So you can understand why they might why there might be common themes here. But so what we see often is that, you know, founders, uh, whether they be academic institutions or um, individuals, can have unrealistic expectations about what does it take to build a company, how much capital is required, what's the right level of ownership, all these sorts of questions. Um, that's a common theme, I would say. From an from a institutional point of view, um, you know, what we like to have is sort of clarity around terms of, of licensing agreements. We find it increasingly that um, universities are, are sort of saying, well, we can't commit to specific terms, but we can give you a right to negotiate or something like that, um, which, is, which is not, not, not great from our point of view. So I think, I think those are the two main buckets I would see is, is, is that around licenses themselves, um, Clarity is, is always good from an investment point of view. Even if we don't like the numbers, we'd rather have clarity. Um, and then from a founder's point of view, um, kind of what is appropriate given the stage of where a project's at. And I, you know, again, sitting from the academic tech transfer office perspective, um, we and our faculty and student inventors often feel like every patent is going to be the big blockbuster. Right. Um, Realistically, when you're looking at investments and, and opportunities flow through, um, you have to come to your own conclusions. Yeah. I'm interested to hear a little bit, and this is a patent geek question, so I apologize to anyone in the room who's not as interested in patents as we are. Um, how do you think about the founding intellectual property uh, versus the team? And what kind of due diligence do you typically engage in when you're when trying to come to those conclusions? Yeah. So, you know, when we when we look at opportunities from academia, we're kind of we sort of take things in sequence to some extent. The first thing we do is we look at the science, and we are very very data driven. So we will dig right into the data. We'll sometimes go into lab notebooks ourselves. Like we, we will we really really look at data um, because this is the at the end of the day. That's what you're that's what you have to believe in. Once we get comfortable there, then we'll turn to all the other aspects. Of, of a deal, including the IP. And what we typically do in that case is we'll bring in a law firm to do diligence on the IP. And those, those really have two main questions. One is freedom to operate, and the second is patentability. Can you, can you actually secure this IP? Um, and even if you couldn't secure, do you have freedom to operate? Um, so that's, that's kind of how we, okay. how we approach it. So you'll do a full freedom to operate at the beginning before breaking Typically, yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is something that universities typically don't do right. at the time of filing. Right. So those must be interesting. And then we'll always ask you to guarantee FTO, and then you'll say we can't guarantee FTO. Any risk is yours. That's right. That's right. Caveat emptor. You've done business with universities before. Yeah. So for those folks in the room, I'm going to try and address some of the questions that came up from the audience uh, before the talk started. Um, for those folks in the room who are thinking about uh, their own startup opportunity and are thinking about ways to pitch um, the VCs, uh, any thoughts? I mean, you must have seen hundreds of pitches over the years. Sure. Um, any thoughts you can pass along to would-be entrepreneurs on what yeah. makes their inventions either stand out, either positively or negatively? Yeah. Um, any common success or failure points you've heard in these pitches? Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely. I mean, the, the first piece of advice I would give, if I, if I were a grad student or a postdoc and I wanted to try, and, or even a, a, a faculty member, and I wanted to try and start a company, I would find someone who has done it before. Uh, the first thing I would do is because they will simply know better than you will if you haven't done it before. Um, what it is that we're looking for? What a pharma partner is looking for? All of that. So they can be hugely helpful. Um, so, but I say the you know the, the most important thing when when presenting to us or sharing your ideas with us is to talk about the unmet need that you're addressing and why you're solution is going to address it better than anybody else's. You know, we don't need to know that oncology is a big market. We know it's a big market. Right? Um, but we need to know why is it that for the specific unmet need you're targeting, your solution is going to be better than what else is out there. Got it. 
Okay. The other question was, we had a number of people in the audience who are looking to break into careers as uh, in venture mm -hmm. capital and as a PhD yeah. yourself. Um, uh, it's a two-part question. The first is, um, if you think back to your days as a, as a PhD student, um, are there opportunities that PhD students should be thinking about to either take advantage of while they're on campus or for their first job thereafter that will help them end up where you are? Yeah. And then um, I'm also interested if you could just paint a bit of a picture of, let's say they land the dream job and they become an analyst at a venture capital fund. Right. What do they actually do? Like, what does their day look like every day? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, in terms of how, how do you how do you sort of migrate into venture capital? I, I mean, I would say there's a couple things here, right? One is there aren't many venture capital firms. Uh, this is a really tiny industry. There are probably in the U.S. maybe 20 firms that do something that resembles early stage venture, and I'm stretching it to get to 20. Uh, it's probably a bit less than that. So there's not a lot of huge numbers of opportunities. That said, firms like ours definitely need like young, really smart people who are very motivated to, to, you know, to, to try and find great opportunities and help build companies. So to, to sort of get yourself on that track, I mean, I think that the program that, that Columbia has where you have students that come and work in, in that uh, office with you. Program. Fellows Columbia program. Technology right. Fellows program. Technology Fellows program. I think that's a fantastic way to get a sense for what we do, um, because it's similar in many ways. You, you look at opportunities, you have to decide whether to file IP or not file IP. You have to decide how to present that opportunity to prospective partners. So it's very similar in a lot of ways. And I think it will give you a great complement to your lab experience, because it's a very different type of work. So I think doing stuff like that, um, finding ways to get involved with companies, um, you know. There are, there are actually companies here in New York City. So uh, finding ways to get involved with them, uh, even if it's for free, um, all of that experience is, is very valuable and stuff that we would definitely you know, give points to if we were interviewing people who had, who had that background. In terms of what you would do at a venture fund, you know, it's really, when you're early in your career, it's gonna be heavily focused on doing diligence and particularly scientific diligence. Um, so really drilling into the data, understanding the competitive landscape, um, understanding what are the steps that are going to be required to take a product from where it is today to the clinic. Um, so very, very sort of data analytically driven work. As you start to get a little bit more senior, you'll begin to negotiate deals. So um, speaking with institutions like Columbia about what should be the terms of doing a spin out. What should a license look like? Um, thinking, with, talking with founders about equity. Um, so all of that sort of becomes added on to the job very, very quickly. And then finally, um, you start to play operational roles in companies that we've actually started. So I'm the CBO, I'm the chief business officer for two of our portfolio companies, in, in addition to my day job. So it's a little bit busy, but you know, we, if you want to do early stage investing, you have to be willing to take operational roles because you just don't have management teams or fully fledged management teams in, in these companies. And, and for that, for those first, let's say the first year on the job. Yeah. So you talked about the diligence side. Is that, um, in my experience with PhD students, uh, you, you spend you know five years of your PhD essentially trying to solve one problem, yeah. maybe two or three problems, but it's a very it's a very narrow focus. Yeah. Are, I assume that in that first role, first year as an analyst you're not looking at two or three projects. What's like of the volume someone can reasonably sure, expect? Sure. So I, I can tell you myself, I probably look at 200 business plans a year. Um, I'll probably do diligence on 20 and invest in two. So that gives you a sense of um, the funnel, if you will. For those 20, um, there'll be varying degrees of depth that we go to, obviously, um, but you know, maybe five of those, we will spend literally two months looking at every single publication within reason, um, talking to every expert we can find in, in the field. And we're not experts in any of it. You know, I, I studied virology. None of my companies are in virology. So you have to become comfortable um, relying upon experts, but also using your own judgment and looking at data critically, even if you don't have the real deep insight into the field.
And I noticed that uh, Versa in, in particular seems to, I, I'm, I'm guessing that unlike many uh, venture firms, you have a very clear preference for hiring analysts out of consulting, out of management consulting. Um, I'm interested, so another sort of two-part question there. One, why? Although as a former consultant myself, um, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, and, and secondly, um, if not consulting, what other kinds of industries do VC firms typically go hunting in? Yeah. So the, I think the why is that, you know, so I did a, I did a PhD. I went into a startup. I was pretty clueless. Uh, I'm sure the VCs thought, like, why, why are we wasting our time with this guy? Because I just, I fundamentally didn't understand sort of the forces at work. So you need, you need some basic grounding in kind of business principles. Now, some people just picked it up naturally. I guess I wasn't one of those guys. <laughs> so I had a little bit of education. So the, the grounding in business principles is one reason why we look at um, people who have come out of a consulting uh, background. You know, I think the second reason is that what the consulting firms do for PhDs in particular is you know, they polish them up, they get them good at presenting, they get them good at making slides, all the communication aspects of it, which are very important in, in, in a business environment. And so it's not to say that a, a, a pure PhD with none of the consulting couldn't do that. It's just that it's more, you're more likely to find that phenotype in someone who's done a PhD and then gone to a consulting firm. You know, that said, I can tell you right now, we're, we're hiring, and our final candidates include... In New York, I should note. Yes. <laughs> our final candidates include uh, two people who haven't worked in consulting firms. So. Okay. And where else does the rest of the industry go hunting for new, for new yeah. hires? Um, you have two basic models, right? One is the pull people out of consulting firms model, and the second is get really experienced pharma people. Right, so different firms have different blends of that or completely weighted one way or the other. Um, so that, that's, the other, that's the other model, yeah. Um, audience, anyone have questions? Yes, we've uh, actually a bunch of questions from the front row. Um, I'm sorry, can you speak loudly and clearly so sure, we can pick yeah. it up? <laughs> Quick question about, I guess, investing in biotechnology early stage research versus, say, uh, any other industry or even digital healthcare, mm -hmm. is there less of a financial due diligence done um, because it's so heavily dependent on how novel the research is? Mm -hmm. um, or is it, you know, or do you look at the finance side of it just as much as you would any other industry? Do you need us, do you need us to repeat the question or is that? Um, so if I could repeat the question then. Um, in early stage life science investing, and in particular in biotech and, and yeah. biopharma investing, when you're looking for a therapeutic or a diagnostic, yeah. is the role played of the financial modeling and financial due diligence right. uh, different than it might be in healthcare IT? Sure. Okay. So I guess it depends on what you mean by financial due diligence. I would think of that in two pieces. One is sort of thinking about the market and how big is the market and the business model. And then the second is how do we fund the company? Right, so in terms of the how do we fund the company, we spend a lot of time thinking about that and how does the funding match with what we would call value inflection points. So as you de-risk an asset, when you move it from discovery through toxicology studies to IND to phase one, you're de-risking it and you're increasing its value. Um, and so we wanna make sure that the funding strategy aligns with those value inflection points. I think what you're referring to though is more than on the market side, sorry, I got the camera right. <laughs> um, and in that case, you know, I would say we don't do a huge amount of diligence, right? What we do is we say, is it a billion dollar product, a $500 million product, a $200 million product? More important than the market size, provided it sort of clears a, a minimum threshold, is is it addressing a big unmet medical need? Right? That's the fundamental thing because that's where, um, that's ultimately what drives pharma interest because pharma will typically look at a molecule and say, well, great, we can start there and we can expand the indications out beyond where you started. But the, what they, what's gonna, the hook that's gonna grab them is do you have a fundamental unmet medical need and have you addressed it? Got it, great. Yes, right in front row. Um, so you guys are playing in the very, very early stage space, but with the eventual goal, right, of possibly IPO or you know, selling these companies. Mm -hmm. does, like, the, does the broader market play any 
anything into like what decisions you guys make or your fundraising? So like I know like biotech has done really well recently yeah. and like it might be running away. Like does that even come into your guys' mind or are you so early that it doesn't make yeah. a difference? So let me repeat the question again. <laughs> Essentially, do the, the broader trends, uh, financing trends, the IPO, IPO market, the later stage financing market, um, and where that money is falling sector by sector influence yeah. your investment strategies given how early they are in yeah. the process? Yeah. So it's, it's a really good question. Um, we think a lot about this. We do invest across the spectrum. So, we, we, you know, while we are very early stage focused, we have clinical stage investments as well. So that's a bit of a different game. But I'll just talk about the early stage part. You know, the the answer is not as much as you might think, um, and it's because, firstly, we can't count on public markets being there. Right? The history of biotech is that the IPO window opens and closes, and you never know how long it's going to stay open. You never know how long it's going to stay shut. And so trying to bank on an IPO as an exit strategy is, in our view, not a winning strategy. So what we do is we design our companies and develop our companies so that they're ultimately going to appeal to a strategic partner in an M&A transaction. Right? That, doesn't say, that doesn't mean to say that um, the companies can't go public or can't become standalone enterprises in and of themselves, but the base case is that we're going to have to sell them to, to a pharma company. So that's what we plan for. Our financing strategies are all based around uh, an M&A exit. And if we have a public market, fantastic. It's upside. Right? You know, there are a lot of good things about public markets. There's also bad things about public markets. And so many times, even if an IPO seems really appealing, it may not be the right answer for a company. But to have that option is great. Actually, I'll, I'll layer on a second question there, which has always interested me. Um, uh, not coming from the life science industry myself, uh, you you also see waves of focus where you know oncology is in. Oncology, no, we don't touch oncology. Wait, no, now we're back in neuro. No, we're not in neuro. Uh, stem cells are hot. Stem cells are not hot. Um, and those moving targets. Well, I mean, aside from being incredibly frustrating, I imagine, for entrepreneurs, um, must be incredibly frustrating for you because yeah. you're investing in things, in some cases, 8 to 12 years before they're going to get to the market, yeah. if you get so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So to what degree do these shifting tides of the thesis, <laughs> the sort of scientific thesis, yeah. influence your investing strategy? I would say that they have some influence, but I come back to the fundamental unmet medical need. Right? If we believe that we can address that, we're not too worried about fashion, right? Fashion, like in every field, has a role, <clears throat> though. You know, these days, if you call anything immuno-oncology, if you call this water bottle immuno-oncology, some farmer's going to want to buy it. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the best water bottle you've ever seen. Um, <clears throat> and that's just, you know, reality of life. Doesn't matter what field you're in, fashion plays a role. <clears throat> and certainly, if we have an opportunity to capitalize on it, we will. <clears throat> but our fundamental Investment strategy is not driven by what's hot this week. Or, sorry, <laughs> we'll let, we'll I got so we'll I, got, I got so excited about immune oncology. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so fashion plays a role. It's not a driver for us. Unmet medical need is the driver, and so we feel that as long as we are addressing a real unmet medical need. The, the, the economics and the acquirers will be there, is our fundamental approach. Yeah. Question in the back. As an extension of that question, it was kind of interesting that medical devices was on your list of um, yeah. I'll repeat the question. Um, so while most of the conversation today has been around the therapeutic side, yes. um, medical devices is on your list of invest your, yes. your investment hypotheses um, and uh, uh, target areas. And that is a bit uh, counter-cyclical these days. Uh, people seem to be yeah. running away from medical <clears throat> devices more because of the regulatory and reimbursement environment. So the question was, um, we're thrilled to see it still on there, especially as a school that does a lot of work in medical devices. Yeah. Um, we're curious why you still have it on there, and it's yeah. an active area for you. Um, you know, medical devices has been a core part of Versant since it was founded. So we have you know, three managing directors. That's all they do. You know, we've seen the fa again fashion come and go, and reimbursement trends, and you know, 
these, these things we believe are always cyclical. Um, we think there's a, there's need for medical devices. Ultimately, the issues that are currently affecting the micro medical device you know field will will be resolved and will play through. And so we're continuing to invest. It's not as big a part of Versant as it used to be. So we used to be 50-50. These days we're two-thirds biotech, one-third medical device. But we think that it's important to continue to invest there. And in the future, we may go back to 50-50. It's really, again, just trying to wait for the reimbursement and you know strategics to basically restructure a bit. And then we think that the you know that market will pick up again. Great. Yes. As a, actually, as a follow-on to that, I'm just wondering how you account for regulatory risk, uh, particularly associated with issues such as data privacy. Mm -hmm. So the question is about how do you account for uh, regulatory risks, in particular around issues, for instance, like data privacy. Yeah. So. You know, our medical, this is more of a medical device question, I think, than a, than a drug question. Our, our medical device strategy is really focused on, um, I guess what you could call in, invasive, um, you know, high, high, um, I, don't know, I don't know what the right word is, non-consumer applications, right? So we've stayed away from the consumer world with our medical device strategy. So it, to some extent, you avoid a lot of the data privacy issues if you're not operating in the in the consumer space, um, so I don't. Yeah, can you give some examples just so that so people understand yeah. when when those? Can you give some examples of the kinds of devices that sure. might fall into the area where Versant? Sure, sure. So we've done a lot in terms of like neurostim, um, ocular implants, um, like spinal spinal fusion technologies. Um, what else? Sort of artificial uh, inserts for knees. Um, so a lot of surgically related and invasive type te you know, technology as opposed to you know, an asthma inhaler that is tracking your location and you know, sending data to the cloud, we, we, we haven't done those types of investments. Okay, question in the back. Uh, in terms of how the founders expected, it should expect to give up in terms of capital and phases of development, um, could you walk us roughly through you know, sort of how much of your company you ought to be giving up or how much capital as we're moving along? So uh, the question is um, <laughs> probably relevant for any of you in the room. So you start off with a big pie, <laughs> and you are going to be growing the pie even bigger, but cutting off more and more slices of that pie as you go along and handing them out. Um, what's a reasonable expectation at sort of each inflection point of yeah. how much of the pie you're still going to hold? Yeah. So. You know, it's, it's a very hard question to answer because it's literally different in every possible company. Um, you know, if you, you can make some assumptions around, um, let's just say for the sake of argument, when you created a company, it was worth $10 million. I'm, t I'm just using that because it's an easy round number, right? And you needed to raise $90 million to get to an exit, right? So what that means is that you will own now 10% of the company by the time you get to the exit. Right? And so that's the kind of, that, 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 it's a very simple example, but that just illustrates what happens over time as you raise increasing amounts of equity capital. Now there's all sorts of things that can come in between and you can change the valuation of the company, but I'm not gonna go into all that. But fundamentally what, you, what you're doing when you start a company is, in the simplest case, one person owns 100%, and then as you bring in equity capital, you, you're, you're, you're literally carving up that pie um, and, and giving pieces of that pie to, to investors. When we use these build-to-buy type structures, though, the game can change significantly because instead of raising $90 million of equity capital, you might only raise 10 or $20 million of equity capital. And so it can be a very different picture. But the things that you, you need to think about are kind of what's the value of the company at the start how much capital do I need to raise, and how much of that capital is equity, and that enables that will then enable you to sort of look at ownership over over time, or at least over funding. Great. We'll take one or two more questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Maybe these the, the two of you, and we'll start in the front. Um, the build to buy deals. Do you also have them in place for medical devices? On the slides, I saw like Roche, BIOS, or more. Yeah. On therapeutics, but you also quiet in the medtech. We've been trying like hell to do one. 
Um, this the question was: Do you do the build to buy type deals for med tech also? Because on the slides, the focus for the the build to buy was mo most of the strategics we saw were biopharma. Yeah. So we absolutely um, were very keen to do those actually on the medical device side. It's been more difficult. Uh, medical device companies, meaning the strategic, the big the big medical device companies, tend not to be, or at least so far, have tended not to be as I guess open to innovative business models. Typically, a medical device company wants to see that you're actually revenue positive before they'll make an acquisition, which is a totally, totally different game from uh, the drug world. Um, you know, in, in the therapeutics, you can sell a, a compound preclinically in medical device. Nowadays, you're expected to have 20 to 30 million dollars of revenue before uh, a strategic will, will acquire. So. I wouldn't say that it's not possible. We certainly have had some discussions that have gone very interesting and in those directions, uh, but uh, it's a much tougher, much tougher deal to do. One more question. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so uh, I wanted to know, like, usually, what's the timeline between you meeting an entrepreneur and you agreeing to, to invest in them? Because uh, this question stems from many of my friends. That you know, VCs give us only 20 seconds to pitch it to them. Yeah. So yeah. Usually, how right. So the question I think is was literally from the time you first meet an investor to the time that they write the check. What generally is the average? I'll add sort of a, a flip to that, which is VCs, at least in our experience, like to say we're interested. Yeah. But sometimes they're still saying we're interested three or four years later. <laughs> and it's one of those things where, like, how do you know when they really want you to go away? Right. So after what amount of time are they probably not actually interested? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, a very difficult question to answer. But I can tell you on, on average, you know, if, if I'm trying to think about the, the deals that we've done, you're probably looking at about a six-month process from kind of first meeting to closing a deal. Because it takes about three months to do diligence, and it takes about three months to actually close a deal. Because you have to negotiate a term sheet, and then you go from a term sheet to an extensive set of legal documents that raise all sets, all, all number of small issues that need to be resolved. So, I think that's about right. Six months for uh, that would be a, that would be a pretty good timeline. Yeah, I've seen them take a lot longer. I've seen them take a bit shorter, um, but six months. Thank you. Well, if you could all join me in, in thanking uh, Carla for coming here today. It's been a, a, a great conversation. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.